Father, I pray for this time in Hebrews. I thank you for this wonderful book. Thank you for the opportunity to see how Jesus is better, or how much better, even. Could, we could say more appropriately. I pray you guide us during our time this morning, including any discussions and questions. Help me to speak clearly and bring to mind the things you have me uh, teach, especially if they're not, not in my notes. And I pray you give us all understanding, give everyone fertile hearts for your word, Lord. Bless this time, exalt Christ in our lives, and we pray these things in his name. Amen. All right, we'll go ahead and open your Bibles to Hebrews 3. We're at verse 13, but we'll look at verse 12 just to review. So Hebrews 3, Jesus is better. So if you remember the the context, chapter 3 begins with a discussion of Jesus being better than Moses, which is fitting because Moses was bringing him into the promised land. And then the discussion becomes Jesus being better than the promised land. Or maybe a, a different way to say that would be Jesus provides a better rest than the promised land provided. That's probably the way to say it. We'll see that in Hebrews 3 and 4. And so we also see, does anyone um, remember from last week the discussion of the rebellion and how that rebellion on the border of the promised land is a very fitting warning to or picture of what might happen with these Hebrews. So the, the Israelites under Moses' leadership come up to the border of the promised land, send in the 12 spies. There's a rebellion with 10 of the spies. They're not able to enter the rest that God had for them. And so the author of Hebrews looks back on that and sees the rest that's being offered through Christ and these Hebrews entertaining, not pressing into that rest, not pushing into the spiritual promised land they could have in Jesus, but instead rebelling. And why were the Israelites in Moses's day kept out of the promised land? Because of, we say they rebelled, but what was their sin? It was unbelief. That's right. They were unbelieving. So unbelief kept them out of the promised land, kept them out of the rest God had for them. Well, similarly, these Hebrews that are being addressed in the first century are entertaining being kept out because of, of their unbelief. Okay, anything to add or any questions or anything before we dig into the verses? Okay, so verse 12, we covered this last week, but we'll pick up here for context. The author says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And we had a conversation last week that it's kind of shocking to me that he uses the word evil here because if we think of evil we probably think of pretty heinous sins murder adultery hurting children but he says that they have evil hearts not because of those sins that they've committed but because of the sin of unbelief and so unbelief can and and we even talked last week we wouldn't say that everyone who's unbelieving or every unbeliever has an evil heart what was it that made their hearts evil? They weren't ignorant. That's right. If you look back, and he says, where does he say? All the things they saw. What verse is that? Where it talks about all the things they saw in the wilderness. Saw my works. Verse 9. Look at verse 9. Your fathers put me to the test and saw my works 40 years. So because the Israelites had seen so much, they had such high accountability when they were unbelieving, it was a manifestation of an evil heart. Now, if you happen to meet someone at the store who knows hardly anything, they just think the only thing they know about Jesus is they think his birthday was on Christmas, which it actually wasn't. 
But anyway, that's a whole other conversation. And so, and so that's they, all they know from Jesus is they, they think when his birthday comes around, they get presents, right? They don't know anything else. Maybe they sort of think he died for their sins, but that's it. Well, they have low accountability. They probably don't have evil, unbelieving hearts. They could have unbelieving hearts. You know, people who are raised in a different faith, Muslims or, or even people that are Mormon, perhaps. Well, they're not going to necessarily have evil hearts. But if they have high accountability, if they know much, if they were raised in Christian homes, if they heard the gospel throughout their lives, if they sat under biblical preaching or expositional sermons, to then turn from that would be an apostate, a falling away, and that would be an evil heart. And so that's the context. They had seen, and remember, what were some of the miracles they saw in the wilderness? You can blurt them out. There's quite a few. The manna, when bread comes from heaven and you walk out of your tent, pick it up off the ground, you've seen something pretty dramatic. When a rock produces water for you, when your clothes don't what? Wear out. So it was really pretty incredible. The pillar of fire at night and the cloud during the day. So great manifestations of God's presence and provision. Yet they turn from that. And because of that, that's why they have these evil, unbelieving hearts. Okay, and that's verse 12. Any questions or anything? And even the word, oh, Patrick, uh, Declan, run that to Patrick, Patrick, please. Uh, God manifests. I don't think that's on, Patrick. Push the little button until the light comes on. Oh, it is? Okay, good. I'm sorry. Hello? There we go. That's on. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, uh, I, I don't understand because they saw all the power of God and all the things that he'd done for them, and it was plain and obvious, and then they were afraid of these giants, and the giants couldn't even match the power of God, and they were afraid of the giants, and they were as nothing to God. Yep. So it doesn't really make any sense. Yeah, it doesn't. They, They had seen the Egyptian army swallowed up in the sea, they parted, they walked between the waves, walls of water, waves walls of water yeah pretty dramatic yeah but there's that's because there's this very common belief that i think all of us can have even after becoming believers that miracles produce faith and that's not the that's not what miracles do miracles testify or legitimize the message and that's an important distinction so the apostles had credibility jesus had credibility the miracles they performed that's why miracles are called signs they point to something, a sign reveals information, points to something. So Jesus did not perform miracles. The apostles did not perform miracles because the miracles themselves would produce belief. They performed miracles to legitimize the message that they were preaching, which would, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the, the word of God, right? Romans ten seventeen, not faith comes by hearing or seeing miracles. And so in luke 16 the rich man and lazarus you know and he says if if someone would come up from the dead then my brothers will believe and what did abraham say they don't believe moses and the prophets they don't believe from the word of god if the word does not produce belief then no amount of miracles will do that and and a really good example and it's interesting you know i've told you things can be descriptive without prescriptive and it's problematic when we take something that's descriptive and make it prescriptive I could be wrong, and you can correct me if you think so. I think Gideon is descriptive when he's putting out the fleeces. I don't think we should look at a man who repeatedly tests God after being told what to do. God graciously accommodates him and then apply that to our lives. And so the fact that he 
had to keep asking for more signs. There's at least three of them. How many signs did he see? He saw the fleece wet, and then the ground dry, and then the fleece dry, and that didn't produce belief. He had to go into the camp to hear the Midianites terrified of him, and, and that was finally when he was able to believe, but all the miracles he saw did not produce belief. So, any, any questions? Pastor Nathan, run that to your dad, Declan. The, the birthday boy. Was it today or a few days ago? Yeah, yesterday. Yesterday. Uh, so, I've been thinking about this, the same question that came up last week. Why, like, Joshua and Caleb were different than the other ten spies when they saw all these miracles? Why did they have a different view? It reminds me of when Jesus taught on the parable of the sower and the seed and the different grounds, the different conditions of the heart. Well there were hearts that were willing to receive. There were well those said. who were humble. It wasn't the problem with the seed. It wasn't a problem with the sower. The problem was with the ground. And those who received it, they were able to, the word took root, and they were able to see fruit as a result in their life. And it's the same thing I think we see as a template throughout Scripture is even as far back as Genesis 15, 6, where Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. So it was just a simple matter of the condition of the heart that being able to um, be humble, which takes humility to have that believing heart to uh, trust what God's word says. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, said. So maybe you've seen that. People have heard the same sermon, left with completely different responses. The sermon, my parents were saved, was very uh, moving for them, and someone else despised it that I knew, that I, my parents were moved by it, and I talked to someone else who heard the same sermon, and they hated it. So different hearts, same seed, right? Same sower in that pastor, same seed in the word was being preached. The first time I went to a Christian church, I'd went, went, Kitty would be fine with me sharing this. I went with my girlfriend at the time, and we left, and the first, I look at her, and I'm like, this is incredible. I can't wait to come back next Sunday. And what did she say? Well, I don't want to come back next Sunday. And I said, okay, we're done. <laughs> so we broke up maybe a week later or something like that. And so, but it was just evident God's bringing me this direction. She didn't want to go that direction. But the point is, we heard the same sermon, and it did nothing for her, yet my, I was, I went just to talk to the pastor about my brother's death, if you remember my testimony, and I didn't get to talk to him that Sunday, and I was already looking forward to going back the next Sunday, because I felt God speaking to me through, through the word, and she I apparently didn't for whatever reason, so. Okay, any other thoughts or anything? John. And then your grandfather, Declan. John Madela, Declan. You know, I've thought similar things before that those lousy Israelites, what was their problem? They had such little faith. <laughs> You're going to humble us right here. <laughs> and I see yeah, it coming. We, how, should, we need how it. How much more have we seen, and, and yet our faith struggles? Yeah, well said. And, um, you know, it took God just a few hours to get the Israelites out of Egypt, but it took him 40 years to get Egypt out of the Israelites. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, every time we point our fingers at someone, we got at least three pointing back at ourselves. That, that's why I point like this, John. There you go. <laughs> I, don't, I don't point like this. I don't want those fingers I, pointing at me. I, I, point, I, I usually so, go like this. Yeah, like this. Yeah. That's what I do, John. Yep. Did I interrupt you? I'm sorry, brother. Did you finish everything? To your grandfather, Declan. Your grandfather right there. Oh, Papa. Probably the greatest sin for the children of Israel is not looking at the giants, but looking at themselves. They compared themselves, the chosen people of God, they compared themselves to grasshoppers. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, God wasn't big enough for them. It wasn't, the, you know, the, the giants were so big because they were, it was just God was small to them. Anyone else? Okay, so just something to notice here, and I wish I would have looked this up in the Greek. If the word for fall away, or if it's one word in Greek and it happens to be the word for apostasy, but if, if you look in verse 12 when it says they fall away from the living God, that's synonymous with apostasy. To commit apostasy, you have to fall away from something. You have to have heard and learned. You had to have approached. You can't commit apostasy unless you have considerable accountability. And that's what apostasy is. It's falling away. These would be people that have grown up in the church or heard the gospel numerous times. To turn from that is to commit apostasy. And so that's what they're in danger of doing, becoming apostates. All right. And then if there's nothing else, we'll look at our new verse for this morning. Verse 13 says, exhort, so this is the solution for unbelief, to exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So we must exhort and encourage each other. That's what combats, one of the things that combats unbelief. Exhorting has the idea of persuading, encouraging. So we should have people in our lives who exhort us, and we should have people in our lives that we exhort. The word for exhort is parakaleo. It's related to our word parallel. And so it has the idea that we come alongside someone or someone comes alongside us. And the only way we can exhort others and be exhorted by others is being in fellowship. So it might seem odd to present fellowship as the solution to unbelief. But if you think of people in fellowship and you think of people out of fellowship, there's usually a strong correlation with their belief or unbelief. And you probably, social media allows us to have insight into the thoughts of, that people have that could be totally unbiblical. And I, there was a friend from college, and, I, and she was writing, and she said that someone had invited her to church, and she said, you know, but my church is going out by the river, or my church is when I'm running in the morning and I see the sunset. And it's not to say that we don't value God's creation or the beauty of it or even appreciate God's greatness through creation but her point was that she didn't really need any fellowship and she didn't need anyone in her life and she didn't need to worship corporately and so I think that is kind of a common belief that I can worship God where I want how I want by myself and it's not to say we don't have private in times of worship that are sweet to us or anything along those lines but it's definitely no substitute it's a supplement but no substitute for corporate worship and what it offers and this is one of the premier places in scripture highlighting the importance of fellowship and a, a body of christ that we're close with people out of fellowship will inevitably find themselves struggling with unbelief when people stop fellowshipping regularly they will inevitably find a decrease in in faith because we know here that fellowship is used to exhort and encourage faith think of that illustration with the coal that's pulled from the fire slowly burns out picturing someone's passion or faith in god uh, someone came to my office i hadn't seen the person for months in two things the person told me i have all these doubts i haven't been in fellowship and my thought was there is a close relationship <laughs> there i am glad you came to talk to me and but you have the solution to your problem you just told me you said your faith is struggling and you said you haven't been in fellowship that's not a coincidence there and this is the second any thoughts or anything before we continue 
Okay, the second of four times the author uses the word today. And that word today stresses what? Urgency. That's Thanks, Chuck. Urgency. It's a present tense. Don't put it off. Do this today. Don't trust that there's going to be tomorrow. Live in the present as though you might not have another opportunity or chance. Second, his use of the word today in the present tense is his way of saying that it's something that should happen each day. We should exhort others each day. Every day we can wake up, say, this is today. I need to exhort others. I need to be exhorted. And he warns that if they don't live this way with regular exhortation, exhortation from others, they might be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So that word hardened, what, what part of your body comes to mind as soon as you see the word hardened? Heart. Yeah, heart. I see hardened, then I don't even have to use the word heart, and that's automatically, and it goes back to the discussion of the soils. There's numerous ways beautiful metaphors for a softness, receptiveness, or hardness. For example, the potter and the clay, right? I, I love that. I've preached it here on at least twice, I believe, because I love that idea that we would be soft, pliable in the potter's hands, that we wouldn't become hard and stiff and marred clay that has to be no purpose except to be discarded because we resist the way the potter wants to shape us. We've got the, the parable of the sower with the soils. We talked about that. And we have language like hardened. Your heart would be hardened or your heart would be soft. And so this word hardened describes the potential consequence when people reject the gospel. There's a progressive hardening of the heart. Let, go ahead and look at Acts 19. Mark your spot in Hebrews. We'll turn, turn back to it. There's a picture of this taking place, you, perhaps even with some of these Hebrew readers. Acts 19. We talked, had a nice discussion last week. I appreciated the balance that there is a, our minds, our intellect are not excluded. Belief and unbelief take place in the heart, but there's also the acquiring of the gospel or knowledge, and then the transition from our mind to our heart, but for many people, it might stop at the, at the mind. But we understand Paul, we know the mind's importance because Paul would go into the synagogues, and he'd reason, which is to say deal with the Jewish mind, when he wanted them to come to faith. And here's an example of what we talked about last week. Acts 19.8. He went into the synagogue and he spoke boldly for three months. That's a long time. That's to have one of the apostles preaching or teaching to you for three months like this. That's pretty incredible. And they had Paul for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But then verse 9, but when some were hardened and did not believe but spoke evil of the way that's the, the the name for first century christianity the way before the multitude he departed from them and withdrew the disciples reasoning daily in the school of tyrannus and so you see that they resisted their hearts were hardened and they were unbelieving any thoughts on that oh declan over to audrey Yeah, I was wondering if when they were um, talking for three months, reasoning and, and speaking for three months, 
Um, was that more than just one time a week? I mean, could they have been, uh, you know, continuing to speak, you know, throughout the throughout the week and not just like, oh, it's the weekly time to go to synagogue? I don't know if they gathered. I don't know if anyone knows more about synagogue worship than I do. I'd guess it at least had one day per week in view. I don't know if they had a midweek synagogue service or some other time that they gathered in the synagogue during the week. We can assume there was at least once Paul came and preached to them, but perhaps they had other gatherings as well. So I, don't, I would doubt the synagogue sat empty all week except for one day of worship. But maybe synagogues, like people could talk about 20th century Christianity and churches are used differently. I mean, there might be some churches that don't have a lot of activity during the week, and other churches that might have a lot of activity. Even our church over seasons has been busier some seasons or weeks or years than others. And so my suspicion is all synagogues were not identical, like all churches were not identical. And there were probably many similarities, like there's many similarities among churches, but it wouldn't be identical. That's my suspicion. And I'm open to anyone's thoughts on that. Did you have something, John? You have something? Definitely run that to, to John, please. I do know that our church services flowed out of synagogue worship. In Ezekiel 36, 26, I've kind of been upset at God many times because when he saved me, he didn't give me an angel's heart or a beautiful, pure heart. He gave me a heart of flesh. It says that he took away my stony heart and he gave me a heart of flesh. And that's why we need that today, everyday reminder, because we don't have a perfect heart but a heart of flesh. Well said. Yeah, well said. Anyone else? One thing you might notice just from this verse in Acts, you don't have to turn back there if you already turned back to Hebrews, but it says that he reasoned with them and he persuaded them. And I just want us to understand Christianity, it's a logical faith. It is built off prophecies. It, you can reason with people. So what do you think that he was... What do you think Paul was reasoning with these Jews about? Well, he was taking them to Old Testament, Old Testament prophecies and showing how those looked forward to Christ. What are some prophecies or types that would come to mind? Well, Abraham and Isaac, as he takes them there and says, yes, Jesus died, God the Father sacrificed God the Son. This is what Abraham and Isaac look forward to. Look at Jonah. Jonah died, was buried, three days, three nights, resurrected. I'm using these terms loosely because he serves as a type. Actually, I've said this before. I, don't, I wouldn't even say Jonah's a type. What is he? What did Jesus say he is? He's a sign. He's a, I'll give you the sign of, of Jonah. He definitely did foreshadow. It's like Jesus staked all of his uh, messiahship. If you think about it, they said, give us a sign. They wanted to see a miracle. Jesus said, I'll give you the sign of Jonah. In other words, if the only part of the Old Testament understanding this correctly if all you had from the old testament was the book of jonah you would have enough to believe jesus or believe in jesus that's pretty amazing isn't it he said all you need is the sign of jonah jonah's death burial and resurrection you can believe in my death burial and resurrection that's coming so they could look back on what happened to jesus and see how jonah was a sign a sign of pretty incredible so my point is, when Paul went into the synagogues, this is what he's doing. He's bringing these prophecies before them, reasoning with them, and saying it's very logical to believe or see Jesus as the fulfillment of the scriptures. Okay, now, I really love this next phrase. 
say that about everything that I teach, but I do love the phrase deceitfulness of sin because it reminds us what sin does. Sin deceives. Sin is deceitful. What are some of the lies that sin tells us or what are some of the ways sin deceives us? What are some of the lies we're tempted to believe when we sin? And there's lots. I'm not looking for just one answer. What are some of the lies we're tempted to believe or some of the ways we let sin deceive us? We'll think. You got Declan, you got some people. Come on, Declan. You got Dwayne, then you got your, your dad, maybe others too. Uh, the lie that we're self-sufficient. What, elaborate, or what do you mean by that exactly? That we can do things on our own. We okay. can pull ourselves up our own bootstraps. Good. We can save ourselves. We can sanctify ourselves. Good. Good. Thank you, Dwayne. That's definitely a lie. Um, no one will ever know. <laughs> yeah. No one will ever know. No one will ever find out. I can keep this a secret. Save myself through works. Yeah, I can save myself. I can be good enough. I can be good enough. My righteousness should, God should accept my righteousness. Yes, yes. This will not ruin my family. This will not ruin my marriage. This will not hurt my children. This will not hurt my parents. This won't hurt my friends. I won't get in trouble for this at work. I, this will not become an addiction. I will do this once. And then twice, three times, four times, five times. And I will be able to stop when I want to stop. Tim? Right from the, begin- right from the beginning, did God really say? Did God, yeah. yeah. Yep. Did God really say this? Did God really say homosexuality is a sin? Did God really say that I shouldn't marry an unbeliever? Did God really say, and then we fill in the blank with whatever we want to believe God didn't, didn't say? Lots of ways that sin deceives us. Some verses discussing the deceitfulness of sin. Romans 7:11, Paul said, "Sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it killed me." So Paul even said he was deceived by sin. Second Thessalonians 2:10 talks about the deception of wickedness or the ways that wickedness would deceive us, probably the exact ways that we've been talking about. James 1, 14 to 16, listen to the language of pregnancy or birth in, this, in these verses that describe sin deceiving us. James 1, 14 to 16, each one's tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And here it is. When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Lots of birth language there. One more time, listen to the birth language. When desire has conceived, we've got conception, it gives birth to sin, and now sin is this, pictured as this baby. When it is full grown, when that sin is grown, it has, it brings forth death. So the idea is sin, I'm not joking, has its own baby. And the baby that sin has is death in a person's life. So in the next verse, James says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Because he knows the potential to be deceived by sin. Think we can get away with it. Think that it won't hurt us. Any thoughts or anything before we continue? Pastor Declan, your dad. I was also thinking about what Paul said in Ephesians 4, 
um, 22, we're jumping back to verse, um, yeah, 22 through 24, there's this process. He says in verse 22 that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Mm. Um, even for believers that, you know, when we allow sin in our lives, we're only just, we're only really fooling ourselves, allowing it to mm -hmm. deceive us. And even um, the corruption it speaks of is a, is a for sure thing, even if we don't see it, we're being deceived that of a for sure thing, which sin leads to death, paralleling what James said in James yeah. 1. Yeah, th this will satisfy me. When I get this, I will finally be happy. My, um, Katie, just take it from Pastor Nathan. thinking is it first peter 2 2 like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation and often talking to the kids about starving their flesh and feeding their spirit and you and describing that baby it's like you want to starve that sin baby you know and feed be like newborn infants longing for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up that there's a a growing that happens and i'm often telling the kids asking them how much they're feeding their flesh today versus their spirit and for adults as well like we're feeding one or the other constantly mm -hmm. good thank you anyone else can we turn the heat down a little bit am i the only one that's hot are you guys hot are you hot you have a jacket on too you're not hot okay i feel like i'm losing weight up here so probably wouldn't be a bad thing what never mind keep it on okay all right so for these Hebrews, sin deceived them into believing that rejecting Christ was good, even because it allowed them to return to, to Judaism. Jesus, or to, yeah, did I say Judaism? Because Jesus could have looked like this threat to Judaism. That's how Paul, they didn't see, they didn't see this as the fulfillment of Judaism. They saw Jesus or Christianity as a threat to, to Judaism. And so they thought rejecting Christ, that was a lie they believed would be a good thing. Verse 14, he says, we've become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. This will sound familiar if you briefly look back at verse 6. Really similar language here for Christ. The same encouragement from verse 6. He said, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. And that's what he says again here, to hold fast to this confidence to the end. So it's just strong. So as you read Hebrews, you can tell the author is regularly telling him, hold fast, continue, persevere, don't turn back, don't fall back. All this language of continuing the race that they're on because they're in danger of not finishing it. What's interesting is the author includes himself. Notice this, he uses the word we. So he, he sees the need to persevere too. He says, if we hold fast versus if you hold fast. So he knows he's not impervious to needing to hold to christ too and not not turn back he has to do what he's telling them to do verse 15 while it is said today if you will hear his voice do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion this is psalm 95 7 and 8 we've this is the second time he quotes this you can say well, this sounds familiar it is because he keeps quoting this remember and so what's psalm 95 just to remind you psalm 95 is that psalm that looks back on israel's time in the wilderness it talks about their rebellion at the border of the promised land, but it's really kind of an umbrella psalm covering all of that season of unbelief and rebellion in the wilderness. So not just the rebellion at the promised land, but the rebellion at the waters when they said God 
was brought him out there to die of thirst or all the other rebellions when they thought god wasn't going to feed them so that whole season is described in psalm 95 and the author keeps quoting it here and again he uses the word today the third or fourth time third of four times he uses this word to stress urgency he says make sure if you hear god's voice today if you hear his voice don't put it off don't harden your hearts they can't live as though they might hear again tomorrow and then second his use of the word today in the present tense reveals they could hear it every day and just as a reminder it's really fitting to look back on that rebellion at the border of the promised land because they rebelled at the border of the promised land and then could not repent and enter remember that they rebelled at the border of the promised land god told them they wouldn't enter then they tried to enter and then they got chased out by enemies so it's just super fitting that if they don't do what's right today there might not be a second chance tomorrow for them that whole generation died and it was only their children that got to enter it's very fitting to say to these these readers if they were to turn back from the spiritual promised land in christ they might not get another chance to enter okay any thoughts before we continue okay the author is going to ask five questions relating to the israelites who were delivered from egypt but died in the wilderness and the author uses four different terms to describe or drive home their rebellion in verse 16 he word rebelled in verse 17 he uses the word sinned verse 18 he uses the word did not obey and then in verse 19 he uses the words unbelief so let's see as he starts describing this rebellious generation verse 16 he says for who having heard rebelled indeed was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses now why would why do you think the author of hebrews would want to emphasize that the people who rebelled or we could even say and were punished at the border of the promised land were the same people who were taken out of egypt there could be more than one answer for this let me say one more time why does the author in this verse want to emphasize that the generation that didn't believe and was punished was the same generation that god brought out of egypt what are some reasons he'd want to make sure they don't miss that point any thoughts maybe because they had seen the slavery they had been slaves and then they saw the redemption that god was doing and all the miracles and they still rebelled yeah so i think one point if this is what francine's saying and correct me if i'm misrepresenting you but i think one point is they had been through so much they had done so much experienced so much yet god was still willing to discipline them so the you kind of because you're you'd kind of think man after all i could i could feel like if i was one of them hey you know god unleashed a bunch of plagues brought me out of egypt redeemed me you know the passover was unleashed on egypt for me to be delivered from my slavery i walked through the red sea i've gotten bread from heaven water from a rock i'm pretty much invincible just to be honest you know god loves me very very much or he wouldn't have done all these things for me i can't imagine him punishing me so it's really not a big deal if i rebel and so the author says just remember that the people who died were the ones who had done and experienced much i think that's part of the reason he emphasizes this 
And then I think the other reason is, yes, God did love them very much. They were his people, his covenant people, the apple of his eye, and he had incredible favor on them, yet when they were unbelieving, he was still willing to punish them. Nobody's beyond God's, God's reach. So the author uses this verse to convey what he said previously. Verses 7 and 15, he talked about hearing God's voice with the words, today, if you will hear his voice. And then in verses 8 and 15, he talked about rebelling after hearing God's voice. So this brings that together. And his question is connected to the earlier verses. He said, who, having heard, rebelled? So earlier he warned them not to hear and rebel, and now he points out that they heard and rebelled. He wants to give an example of people who heard and rebelled. Make the point that these Israelites in the wilderness didn't rebel because they didn't hear. They heard and then chose to rebel, like the Hebrew readers. And that's what made the sin of rebellion in the wilderness so bad, that accountability that we've talked about many times. They should have known better. They chose not to believe as opposed to not having the opportunity to believe. They had plenty of reason to believe God would protect them in the promised land. It's what would make things so bad for these Hebrews if they turned from Christ because they heard so much too. So to make it perfectly clear, just like the Israelites heard and rebelled were punished, the Hebrews who were hearing in, in the first century were in danger of rebelling and being punished too. And this is the first time Egypt is mentioned, even though we've talked a lot about Moses, the promised land, numbers, and the time in the wilderness. This is the first time Egypt's mentioned by name, and it reminds us of all the times the Israelites longed to return to Egypt after being delivered from it. And John kind of brought us all back down to earth, allowing us not to do something that we can commonly do. I think we can read the Bible, and if you're like me, you're, you're kind of looking at the Israelites, and you're like, man, those Israelites, I can't believe how bad they are. Thank you, Lord, that I'm so much better than them, you know? I am so glad the book of Numbers doesn't look at all like my life and that I don't complain like them, that I am believing. Thank you, Lord, for making me so much better than the Israelites in the Old Testament, right? So, so we can tend to do that. It's obviously not what, what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to apply this to ourselves, and so that's what he's doing here. He's saying that they were brought out of Egypt. They were blessed greatly. You've been blessed greatly. Don't look down on them and think that you're better than them or that you won't make the same mistake. Any thoughts? Tim. You know, you, th you think about um, 10 spies going into the <clears throat> promised land, and um, eight of them don't believe, two do believe, and, uh, but a whole generation is punished for the unbelief of, of eight. Although, you know, it's, it's almost like disproportionate to the sin, the uh, punishment. You have any thoughts about that? I do, I do, and I don't like to disagree with people, but I feel like I should disagree with you, Tim. Okay, and here's what I'll disagree with. You said the generation was punished for the unbelief of 10, but... So there were 12 spies, two believed, 10 didn't. That's fine, that's fine, that's fine. Yeah, that's all right. And so those 10 spies came back, but the entire nation became unbelieving through their report. So I would not say that there were only 10 unbelieving. I would say it began as 10 unbelieving, but when they gave their report that spread through the nation, and Joshua 
Caleb looked. I get the impression. Here's my reading of Numbers 14. The, the spies come back. They begin to, and what's everyone doing while the spies are gone for those 40 days? Just waiting with anticipation. I mean, it's one of those situations where I bet the nation could not wait for the spies to get back and report what they saw. And they're just on the board of the promise line each day waiting for them. And when they come back, you know, they can't text, right? I'm not being funny, but they can't text or get screenshots or photos or emails about what they're seeing. There's no satellite photos. So they're waiting with anticipation. The spies come back and everyone's just, you know, on pins and needles. What happened? What did you see? And the spies say, hey, it was great, just like God said it would be. Here's, here's grapes. You know, it's so fruitful, land flowing with milk and honey. Got to carry grapes on this stick. We're gonna be, it would be so amazing to live there. But there's these enemies and as they describe the, the enemies there, the giants, then the nation begins to believe the bad report. And Joshua and Caleb, what happened with them when they see this? They are like, I can't, no, 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 no. And they're trying to stop it. They're trying to stop this report from spreading. And, they're tell, and what do they start saying? They're like, no, if God is for us, these enemies will be nothing. We will defeat them if God is on our side. But they couldn't stop that report from spreading. So Joshua and Caleb saw the nation beginning to unbelieve, if beginning to unbelieve, if I say that correctly, tried to stop it, but they couldn't do that. And so I think they'll, so the whole, it began as the unbelief of 10 men, but the report produced the unbelief of the, of the nation. Just to piggyback on that one, looking back at Numbers chapter 14, those um, 10 spies died immediately of a plague, according to um, verse number 37. So God wiped those guys out immediately. But God's indictment on Israel was not because of their just of this one time of not believing. He describes this people as a rebellious people. Um, let's see if I can find the verse. So they've tempted me these 10 times and they, they uh, verse number 22, because of all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have tempted me now these ten times and have not hearkened to my voice surely they shall not see the land which i swear unto their fathers neither shall any of them that provoked um, provoked me see it so it's almost as if this was the straw that broke the camel's back because they had not repented of their unbelief that was um sequential throughout their time in the wilderness they characterized them yeah it's just this is what you've always done you have failed to change and yet you're manifesting this unbelief this hardened heart yet again and it wasn't, um, it was interesting because the way they're describing this, when you compare back to these are the same people that saw the Mount Sinai on fire. They, they heard the voice of the Lord when the Ten Commandments were spoken by God and they had to stop their ears and say, Moses, you go talk to God. We can't, we can't have this conversation. You go talk to God and come back and tell us what God wants. And they saw all of this and they still had a hardened heart throughout their journey in the wilderness up to this point. Mm -hmm. So it's like a culmination of... This is the final straw. Yeah, well said. God had been long-suffering, but had had enough. And I could be wrong, but it's almost like God looked and said, I'm not going to be able to bring in this generation. They're too unbelieving. They won't be able to defeat the enemies. So we have to, we're going to have to start over with their children. <clears throat> Anyone else? Good, good conversation. Okay, so one, uh, one other thing there to learn from. When he mentions Egypt, it's, iron it's sad. Probably ironic is not the best word. Sad or even pathetic. The... When the Israelites were in Egypt, they cried out for deliverance. God delivers them, they get out of Egypt, and then they cry out to go back to Egypt repeatedly, right? Oh, we miss Egypt. It was so good there. Why'd you take us out of there? We had all the leaks. 
onions and cucumbers and meat and fish and all the wonderful things we wanted, and now we're out here, nothing but the stinking, stinking bread you've given us. And so that's very fitting, though, the pig wanting to return to its, the mud, right, or to its vomit, a dog to its vomit. And, and that's us when we're delivered from something, but yet we then long to return to it. So we think, well, Israel, I can't believe how foolish they are, but we're foolish. Rare is the person who can say that they sinned, repented, and never returned to any sin they repented of, right? So we've all had, a, your, take it to your mother, Duffin, had those sins we repented of and then found ourselves back in that slop or consuming our vomit. <clears throat> watching Declan's like watching a, a very entertaining person in my life. I don't know. <laughs> um, just kind of piggybacking on what John said, I think as believers, growing up, I remember just feeling frustrated with the children of Israel and like, how could they see all this stuff? And then now it is the longer I'm a Christian, the more convicted I am because if God held them to that kind of level of accountability and we have the complete revealed word of God and we get to see this from front to back, we can pick it up and read it anytime we want. And we have the Holy Spirit within us if we're Christians and we still struggle with sins or doubt or frustration or anxiety that's just super convicting i'm reading um we're going through the respectable sins right now and on the top of again of anxiety or worry and it just so this is what they did all the time they were always worried about what's not going to happen and it's in the reality we do the same thing mm -hmm. awesome anyone else good conversation Okay, <clears throat> notice the words he says, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? So the point of the, the point is these people were punished after brought out of Egypt, significant for a few reasons, that they were favored, God loved them, had done so much for them, but they weren't beyond being disciplined. <clears throat> but probably the really kind of important, here, here's how I want, let me say it like this. Let me, let me, have, you, let me have you create two locations in your mind. I want you to think of Egypt, and I want you to think of the promised land, okay? And you've got Egypt, you've got Israel coming out of Egypt, and they get up to the promised land, but they don't enter. So they made it partway in their journey, right? So they're on this journey to the rest God has for them, but they don't make it. So they started the journey, but didn't finish. Can you see why that's like a perfect picture, or a perfect warning to the Hebrews? Because every reader... Every Hebrew that this is written to was, had started the journey. They're on the journey to Jesus. They have begun. They, they are pursuing him, but they might turn back. And so that's why the, and so, so the other thing is with the Israelites, some of the Israelites did enter, and so there's two groups of Israelites. Think of it like this. There's a group that entered the promised land, and there's a group that died in the wilderness. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, which group are you going to be? Do you want to press into the promised land or do you want to die in the wilderness? But they're all going to have to decide which, are they going to continue their journey and press in or, or are they going to rebel and perish in that huge, you know, the, the wilderness was a huge graveyard. <clears throat> Just adding to that emphasis on how the author of Hebrews distinguishes in verse 12 when he says, take heed brethren, versus verse 1 of Hebrews 3 where he says, wherefore hold brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. So there's this, he's addressing the entire group of Jews or of Hebrews, 
But he makes a distinguishing between the believing Jews and the unbelieving Jews, and his pleading is with the Jews that are on the fence, that mm -hmm. they haven't made that full commitment mm -hmm. to, to Christ. And, prob and probably one of the other important lessons from the book of Hebrews is it matters how we finish, right? Mm -hmm. It's not where we're at. It, I mean, it doesn't matter how we're doing today. That's the emphasis on the word today. But it really matters how we finish this, this race or this journey. And that's why it's a, it really is a celebration when someone graduates to heaven. It really, to see someone finish well, we're sad, you know, we grieve, we miss people, we lose, we lose loved ones, and we, sometimes we wonder, you know, what we might, should have said or done, and there, there can be these kind of nagging, plaguing um, hurts or regrets, but at the same time, we do celebrate when people finished well, because we know not everyone finishes well, right? Some people start well, and then turn back, fall away, commit apostasy. So it really is a very legitimate celebration when someone has finished well. We really should celebrate that. Just, it's, it can be bittersweet because you miss but it really is a time to say, you know, thank you, Lord, for, for the, that they pressed into the promised land. You know, not, not the heavenly one now, but the, or not the earthly one, but the heavenly one. And so this, we should fittingly call them celebrations of life for people that finish well, because not everyone does, and that's why we're continuing to exhort each other. It doesn't matter so much where we are today, and so, you know, like John MacArthur, I wonder how many more years he has, but when he finishes after his 56 years of faithful ministry, I will celebrate role, and when different guys are all being pulled down from the things, their failings and disqualifications, it really is wonderful to see men that are that prominent such public ministry without any accusation to be brought against. I'm not to say they're perfect, but we've largely blameless. R.C. Sproul seemed to be. You might disagree with him theologically on some things, and you know wonder why he's pedo Baptist or something. But you don't you don't doubt his heart for Christ or the gospel. So it's wonderful to see these men finish finish that well. Any thoughts or anything? And Hebrews warns people to make sure that they follow that example and and. Finish and don't turn back early. Okay, ver uh, Patrick, Declan, on that to Patrick. Uh, I just have a question. Uh, is, is worry a sin? You ju Jill sin? mentioned that. Is that why you're asking that? Yeah, is worry a sin? Because if you, is that a show of lack of faith? Well, I have good news, Patrick. She said she's reading Respectable Sin, so apparently it's a respectable one. It's a <laughs> Why don't you hand it to Jill? Let Jill let Jill defend her. <laughs> I, I struggle with this. I struggle with this, and I'll, I'll just give an example. Every time my wife is delivering one of our children, what man doesn't worry? In fact, if we looked at a man that wasn't worrying, that was just kicking back, you know, relaxed, we'd probably think something was wrong with him. So I don't know. I don't know the the right balance here. I do know that I worry. I do know that I'm anxious to see my wife's healthy, my, my new child is healthy. If my, my children are out, I'm a little anxious till they get home. I don't know if I'm not handling these words correctly. You know, if I trust the Lord enough, would I be able to just kind of sit back and say, well, whatever happens with my wife and this new child, I have a hard time. You must, you must have to have a maturity that I clearly don't have on this side of heaven and probably never will. Declan, over to, over to Francine. What's that, Declan? Did you have a, Did you have some counsel for me? Oh, Nana, yeah. 
Nana and Papa. Um, I just think it's where you take that worry. We all worry, but God lets us have that worry so that we can turn to him Good. consistently, which is what you're doing when your kids are out and they've got their licenses and things like that, and you're praying mm -hmm. for their safe return. And mm -hmm. I just think that means a lot to just, we're going to have little reminders all the time of why we need to pray and be mm -hmm. close to him. That's good. Yeah, cast our cares on him. Yeah, good. To Tim, Declan. Um, I think of the scripture, endure then you shall be saved. And it's kind of like this. But at the same time, we believe that when we believe we're saved, you know, it, it, you, know you don't lose your salvation. Mm -hmm. At least I believe this church believes that. We don't, yeah. And uh, so, um, do you have any thoughts about that? On um, persevering or enduring yeah, till the end? The idea of enduring, uh, you know, and you have to endure to the end. Mm -hmm. Or you're saved when you first believe. Bible's mm -hmm. um, contradicts. Yeah, you know, and work out your salvation with fear and trembling there's there's these strong exhortations for us to to persevere i don't think people lose their salvation i don't think you can be born again and then unborn i don't think you can be sealed by the holy spirit and then unsealed and so that begs the question what happens when people who looked saved fell away there's a verse in first john we can we can look at it briefly in first john i think it might be 219 this is this is the verse that really nails this and i don't think we'll turn back to hebrews which is fine Is it verse 19 where he says, they went out from us, but they were never of us? Yeah, 1 John 2, 19. This is probably the premier verse addressing the question that you're asking. <clears throat> and you should all see this. You should all be familiar with this verse. This is the verse that hopefully will come to mind when a very prominent person who looked to be a believer falls away or commits apostasy, right? Like um, Josh Harris. Thanks, Pastor Nathan. That's what I was thinking of Josh Harris. Yeah. So they went out from us but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were, that they all, that they all are not of us. Now, one of the implied points is that prior to these people going out, they looked like they were of us, or, right? They looked like believers, that's the idea. The only thing that evidenced or served as evidence that they were not believers was them going out. But until then, you'd believe that they were believers. Maybe even in Josh Harris's case, had preached, preached powerful sermons. But we do know that there are individuals who will stand before the Lord someday and seem to have done powerful things for him, but then hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you, right? Wasn't that the claim of the individuals in Matthew 7? They say, well, didn't we do all these things for you? And they name numerous supernatural things, miracles and so forth that they supposedly performed. And Jesus doesn't even dispute that they did those things, but he does say that I never knew you. So it's very possible for people to seem to do things for the Lord and to look saved, but then to go out and show that they were, that they were never saved. Now, in terms of um, Tim's question, one of the things I frequently say, and I think 
Saturday's sermon about sanctification. We're trying to avoid the two ditches. We're trying to avoid swinging the pendulum to one extreme or the other. And so there's a problem with the person that says, well, you know, I prayed that prayer. I don't have to persevere. I'm, I'm bored again. So whatever I do now, like there's almost this license to sin or something. And there's something, that's a ditch. That's a wrong ditch to be in. And, and then the other ditch to avoid would be the ditch that says, that doubts salvation constantly. Because John said, I want you to know that you are saved. I want you to believe that, have that doubt every day. So question of believing persevering yes right it's both we believe and we we persevere we don't swing to just one extreme and and think because we want any other thoughts on that it's a good question for sure over to Declan okay to, um, piggyback <clears throat> on the worrying and anxiety okay. and just um, going through uh, you know the same book as them um, it's it's uh, what was being addressed was just when that anxiety and worrying happens that um, we should have like the scripture memorized that we can go back on and remember what God says about, um, you know, how he cares for us and also, you know, his, the ultimate plan, whether it's, you know, good things are happening or bad things are happening in our lives and that we can um, remember that we can trust him in those times when those things happen. And sometimes we just need to continually to remind us with those. Good. And I'll just share something that you might, because we want, you know, we do ACBC training here. We pay thousands of dollars to bring the, bring the conference here. We want people to be equipped to counsel others and to counsel ourselves. So this is what I say. When you're dealing with that person who is doubting their salvation, but they you believe they're saved. You believe they're sincere. You believe their lives have been changed through the gospel. You take that struggling person to Romans 7, the end of it, where Paul says, I do what I don't want to do. I don't do what I want to do. Oh, a wretched man that I am. And you encourage them that that's like the safe haven for every Christian who's struggling at times, which we all have that struggle, right? We all have sinned at times and thought, oh man, I thought better of myself than this. And how could I still be doing these things? And oh, what wretched man that I am taking Romans 7. But then when you meet that person who's sinning and doesn't seem to feel bad and it just tells you, hey, I prayed this prayer when I was six and or at that time at that camp and so I'm a Christian so I can do whatever I want and I'm living with this person or I, you know, fornicate or I get drunk, but I know that I'm saved. You take that person to 1 John, right? Where 1 John says in chapters 3 and 4 that whoever practices sin or makes a habit of sinning that they're not really a Christian. And so you're equipped to bring to bear on the situation depending on the sort of person that you're dealing with. And you've probably encountered both types of people, the person who thinks they have license to sin, they need First John, and then the believer who's doubting who then needs to be planted in the end of Romans 7 and be encouraged by that same struggle that Paul had that all believers have at times. Any, th- any thoughts or anything? Before we close, I think it's about time. God addresses, uh, he, says, he says to the wicked, he says, if they would just turn to me, I would save them, save them and mm-hmm. restore them. But they don't. They don't. Mm-hmm. They won't do it. I don't understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Turn yeah. away from their wickedness. Mm-hmm. 
All right, anyone else? Okay, let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time. Wonderful discussion this morning. Hopefully we rightly divided your word, and especially some of these areas that require balance. I pray, Lord, that if I didn't rightly divide anything or didn't strike the right balance, that it wouldn't bear witness, but anything that was said that's faithful to Scripture or is true, Lord, that it would bear witness to your people. And we, we all do at times find ourselves at the end of Romans 7 and need the encouragement that the word offers and we can feel oh what wretched man i am why do i do these things i don't want to do and why do i why don't i do the things that i should do and so i do thank you for that passage lord help us to keep our eyes on christ which is really the point of the book of hebrews help us to persevere to endure i pray you would strengthen our faith lord through your word pray that if there's any unbelievers even who've joined us during the sunday school hour that that you would save them that you'd open their hearts to the gospel give them that fertile fertile soil to the word being sown Bless the time of fellowship now, and then lead us into the worship service that follows, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you're dismissed. God bless you guys.